So we're back in John this morning. If you want to turn there, we're in John chapter 11, verse 28. It says, when she had said this, let me back up a bit, actually, 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, Bethany, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So that's where we are this morning. Let, let's just bow our heads again and, and go to the Lord before we start this morning. God, we're, again, just so grateful for how great you are. Um, and we read about this in this passage. Your son came to do the unimaginable. He came to die for our sins and rise again and give us new life. We just pray that um, as we look at this as we look at this passage, at your word, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to you this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. All right. So, um, good morning again. We, last week we looked at um, Martha and a little bit of Mary's reaction to Jesus, Jesus' delay in coming to Bethany. Remember, he had waited for two days before he left for that two-day journey. And um, they had sent word to their brother, sorry, they had sent word that their brother Lazarus was very sick. And the implication of sending a messenger to Jesus to tell him this would have been that they wanted him to come and heal their brother, right? Um, we know this because Mary and Martha both say the same thing to him when he arrives, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we saw last week that Martha believes in Jesus. She believes that he is the Messiah, as she says to him. Um, but she doesn't quite understand what he means when he says that her brother will rise again. And we know this because, first of all, let me go ahead here, get into our slides. She says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she understands the common Jewish belief that God will raise the righteous on the last day. But she doesn't understand what is about to happen, that Jesus is about to raise her brother from the dead. And the second reason we know that she doesn't fully understand is because she protests when Jesus asks for the, the opening of the tomb, the entrance of the tomb to be opened. Um, it says in verse 39, Martha says to, to, to Jesus, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And, and this may be the moment that she believes. Um, she, 
the moment that she starts to believe, but initially she responds with, to Jesus with disappointment. She knows that he could have healed her brother if he had been there. And, and she says that to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think one thing we can learn is that sometimes, like Martha, we too believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We too believe in him, in his power, and, and his authority, but we too can sometimes be disappointed in how he does things. It's not how we would have done things. It's not the timing that we would have wanted or the way that we would have wanted things to be done. Um, for example, my grandfather accepted Jesus on his deathbed. Uh, my mom had prayed for his salvation for decades, her whole life. And we were all grateful that he finally did believe at the end, but there was a lot of agony leading up to that moment. There was a lot of prayer and a lot of shedding of tears. Why had it taken so long? God's timing and the way that he works is very often different than how we want things to go um, or how we prefer. Um, but that's very often the way that he does things is so different than, than what we prefer, isn't it? Um, but he asks us to trust his way of doing things, to trust his timing, to trust him. And that's what Jesus does here with Martha as well. Jesus responds to Martha by revealing more of who he is. He says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He says to Martha. And, and that's a lot to think about and agree with in a moment. But Martha gives a great response. She says in verse 27, I guess I don't need to skip ahead. She says in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And maybe Martha doesn't fully understand what Jesus is talking about, but she does believe in him, and, and she, she, claim, she doesn't claim more than she's sure of here. She claims what she believes. She says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. She believes that Jesus is the Messiah, and she not only recognizes that he is the Messiah, she believes that the Messiah is worth following, that Jesus is worth following. And so that's where we left off last week. Um, this week, we're about to see Mary's response to Jesus, his late arrival. Martha affirms her belief in Jesus as the Messiah. And then in verse 28, we just read, it says, When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So Martha goes back into the village where her sister is, where, where Mary is mourning, and she tells her in private, it says, that Jesus is here and is calling for her. Why would Martha tell this to Mary in private? Well, we don't know for sure, but it could be that Jesus has asked her to do this. Um, we know that Jesus has asked, has called for her. It says that he has called for her. That's what Martha tells to Mary. Um, and remember, Jesus is 
in the place, he's, he's outside of town. He's not even in Bethany yet, and he's remained there. He's waiting for Mary to come to him. Um, I think it's safe to assume that there's a reason that Jesus hasn't entered the village yet. Jesus hasn't come to raise, hasn't just come to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's also come to minister to Lazarus's sisters, Martha and, and Mary, and to challenge and expand their faith and understanding in who he is. And maybe he wants to have an opportunity to speak with Martha and Mary before he raises their brother from the dead. We saw that last week in Jesus's conversation with Mary, right? Jesus challenges her concept of who he is, of who Messiah is. And Jesus doesn't waste any time. Every opportunity he has to teach or to challenge or to deepen others' understanding of who he is, he takes that opportunity. There's so much we can learn from that alone. I, I don't know about you guys, but there's so many opportunities that I've had to share my faith, to share Jesus with others, and I've failed. I've missed and I've lost the opportunity. And sometimes we may never get, get that opportunity back. Jesus doesn't do that. He uses his time on earth so wisely and he takes every opportunity he has. Anyway, Martha tells Mary privately that Jesus is calling for her. Specifically, she says the teacher is calling for her. And several commentaries that I looked at pointed out how, how unusual this would have been for a rabbi to initiate contact with a woman. <clears throat> but not only that, we know that Jesus taught women as well, and that was very unusual for a rabbi to allow a woman to sit at your feet if you're a rabbi while, while you taught. And we see in another gospel, I think you guys know this, this story as well in Luke, where we first encounter Mary and Martha, um, we see that Mary is one of these people, who's, one of these women who sit at Jesus' feet. And I want to look at that passage, Luke 10, verse 38. It says, a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Again, Mary was, was not only allowed to sit at Jesus' feet and be taught by him, in a way, Jesus is also exempting her from doing what women in Jesus' day were supposed to do. And this is upsetting to Martha. She wants to be a good host, but she needs her sister's help. To be honest, I think we can probably relate to this situation as well, right? To, to Martha, I mean, if something needed to be done and someone is supposed to be helping and they're not helping, we would probably be upset as well. I know I would be. But if we look a little bit more carefully at what's happening here, what's happening in the scene, I think we will see and understand better what Jesus is actually saying. In verse 40, it says, Martha was distracted with much serving. And if we look at another translation, the NLT, it says, Martha was distracted by the big dinner that she was preparing. 
So from a worldly perspective, we can understand why Martha was upset. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. And he's, he's come to their house for a meal. Of course, we would go out of our way if, if an important guest was coming to our house for a meal. Um, but this isn't just an important guest. This is Jesus. Martha is so upset that she confronts Jesus. And then he confronts her. Or rather, Jesus reframes the situation for Martha. And he says, Martha, Martha, you're so anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And I think the NLT kind of clarifies a little bit more. It says, Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. So Jesus reframes this situation. Um, Martha doesn't need to prepare a big meal. Jesus wasn't expecting a big meal. His concern is with people, with spending time with people and with teaching them. Like, like, we, like I just said, he uses every opportunity he has to expand people's understanding of Jesus and to teach them. If Martha had recognized that this was an opportunity to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him, maybe she could have figured out a simpler meal and not been running around so much, right? Trying to make sure everything was perfect. We're told at the beginning of chapter 11 in John, verse 2, that this Mary that we see in Bethany is the same Mary that anoints Jesus' feet with perfume. Very expensive perfume. When Mary anoints Jesus' feet with perfume and wipes his feet with her hair, we're going to look at this in chapter 12. When she does this, Judas protests. Remember Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, he protests that the perfume could have been sold and, and the money given to the poor. This, was, this would have been worth a lot of money, this perfume. And Jesus says to him, the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. And we'll talk a little bit more about that anointing on another Sunday. But my point here is that Jesus wasn't always going to be around. Mary recognized the opportunity to learn from Jesus, as we read in Luke 10, and sat at his feet. These are opportunities. There are opportunities around us every day, all of us. And we need to have eyes to see these opportunities, um, or we're going to miss them. Mary discovered that Jesus allowed women to sit at Jesus' feet and learn. Other rabbis didn't allow that, and she takes the opportunity. And now we're seeing Mary interact with Jesus again here in, in John chapter 11. He calls for her, and it says she runs to him. Many scholars believe that each time Jesus went to Jerusalem, he had stayed in Bethany. And if that was the case, he likely stayed with Lazarus, meaning Jesus knew Mary and Martha very well. And, and Mary, like Martha, wants to know why Jesus waited for two days, why he didn't come right away. So she runs to him. And in verse 31, it says, When the Jews who, who were with her in the house, consoling her, 
saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Mary expresses two things here. The first thing she does is fall at his feet. Does she fall at his feet because of her grief? Or does she fall at his feet because of who Jesus is? And, and maybe it's both. It's interesting to note that each time we see this Mary, Mary of Bethany, it's at the feet of Jesus. In the Gospels, she is at the feet of Jesus three times. We see this, we see Mary mentioned three times, and each time she is at Jesus' feet. And this happens twice in John and once in the Luke story that we looked at in Luke chapter 10, where Mary is at Jesus' feet learning from him. The other instances are here in chapter 11, and then in John 12 when she anoints Jesus' feet with perfume. The act of falling at someone's feet is very significant. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus heals 10 lepers, and only one comes back to thank him. That's the Samaritan leper. And what does he do? He falls down at Jesus' feet in gratitude. When Jesus encounters a man um, who's filled with demons, who identify themselves as legion, they, or he, run to Jesus instead of away from him, which is pretty interesting. They run to Jesus, fall down before him at his feet, and beg for mercy. Jairus, a synagogue official, falls down at Jesus' feet and begs him to heal his daughter. And, and Mary Magdalene and another Mary, there's a lot of Marys in the Bible, aren't there? Um, Mary Magdalene encounters the risen Jesus and falls down at his feet to worship him. There's a few, there's a few different reasons here for people falling down at Jesus' feet, but whether it's gratitude or fear or petition or worship, one thing is common in all of these situations, and that it's that all of these people are recognizing who Jesus is. And so similarly, when Mary falls down at Jesus' feet, she is also recognizing who Jesus is. Mary makes the same confession as Martha, but instead of confessing with words, like Martha does, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, Mary does it with her actions. She falls down. Her posture proclaims that he is the Son of God. And then she cries out to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha had said the same thing. I'm sure they discussed it, actually. I'm sure they were wondering, where is Jesus? Why is he taking so long to get here? <clears throat> we're, but um, we're so ignorant, aren't we? There's so many times in my life when I, too, have questioned God, the God of the universe. Why, why did it take so long, God? Or why did this happen, God? Um, my father died relatively young. He was in his 50s. Um, he had beaten cancer, and the doctors wanted to do a procedure to make sure that the cancer didn't come back. Um, but this made his immune system very weak, 
and he contracted the flu when he was in the hospital and his body couldn't fight it and he died. And it was devastating. Why did this happen? He had beaten cancer. We had prayed for him to be healed of cancer and he was. And then he died of the flu. And I still don't understand that. The only answer I got from God was that it was his time to die. And so we're so like Martha and Mary, aren't we? <clears throat> Excuse me. Such limited understanding, even though we think and we act otherwise. We think that we know what's best for us, but we really don't. What we need to do is, is to accept our limited understanding of God and to trust him. Trust that he knows better than us. Um, and that's not easy to do. But it starts with what Mary is doing here. It starts with humility, falling down at the feet of Jesus. <clears throat> and we're allowed to be honest with him. He already knows our thoughts. Mary is very honest with him. She, like Martha, expresses her disappointment in him. Um, and she knows who Jesus is, but she still doesn't understand his ways. We, we, we also may never fully understand God's ways in this lifetime anyway, but he doesn't ask us to fully understand him. He asks us to trust him and to follow him. Even in our ignorance, even in our lack of understanding, he asks us to follow him and to trust him and to surrender our lives to him. And that's what makes following Jesus so difficult initially because we need to discover, we need to understand that he is trustworthy and that he is worth following. But as we get to know him, we start to understand this. We start to understand him because we start to know him. And, and we start to realize that he is, he is worthy of being followed, of being trusted. So Mary and Martha still don't understand. And Mary cries out in disappointment and agony. And in verse 33, it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come also, sorry, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Remember, when Mary runs out of the house, it says the Jews who were with her followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. By the way, what, why does it keep saying the Jews when it's referring to Mary and Martha's relatives and friends that are coming to console them? Um, often when John uses the phrase the Jews, He's talking about people who oppose the teaching and ministry of Jesus. So it's very possible that some of these people who have come to console Martha and Mary are opposed to Jesus. And we see, we actually see evidence of this after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. In, in verse 45 and 46, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, raising Lazarus, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So there's definitely people in this crowd who don't like what Jesus is doing, or maybe they just don't like him. Back to verse 33, though, it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit 
and greatly troubled. And the Greek words here are really important. The Greek words here for deeply moved and greatly troubled mean actually mean angry and upset or agitated. And other translations do use the word angry, which I think is more accurate, but why would Jesus be angry? Is he angry at Mary for questioning him? Um, is he angry at the Jews who are weeping with Mary? And the Greek word used for weeping here actually means wailing. They're crying out. One definition says uncontained grief. They're just sobbing out loud. And so there's a big scene of people crying out. Um, is, this, is this why Jesus is angry maybe? Or are they putting on a show and he's upset about it? I don't think so. Um, I don't think it is. Most of the scholars and the commentaries that I came across um, believe that sin and death are the reason that Jesus is angry. So he's angry at something much deeper than what's going on in front of him. And it seems most logical and consistent with this narrative, too. You see, Jesus' next words he aren't confronting anyone or anything. He says in the next verse, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. So Jesus is angry, and he asks immediately, where is Lazarus's tomb? Because he's going to confront death head on. And that's why he's angry. He's angry about sin and death. Jesus sees the grief and the pain in front of him, the pain that death produces, and he's upset. He knew that Lazarus had died. That's not a surprise to him. But the reality of death and the agony and the sorrow that death produces surround Jesus. All these people are mourning, and it troubles him. It upsets him to the point that he becomes angry. We know that death is the result of sin, right? Adam and Eve in the garden sinned, and Jesus curses, sorry, God curses them. Um, and that's where death happens. Jesus knows this, and he is about to confront death head on. The majority of Jesus' miracles have dealt with sickness, with sick people, and he's, he's healed sick people. All these people, sorry, his ministry and miracles that he's performed are just a taste of what he's ultimately come to do which is to defeat sin and death once and for all. And here too, with the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus is about to point to his ultimate purpose on earth, which was to conquer sin and death. It angers him how it's come to this, sin and death and grief. And maybe he's also angry at the hopelessness with which these people are grieving. No one yet understands the hope that Jesus is going to offer when he dies on the cross and when he conquers sin and death once and for all. I know, I know where, sorry, if we know that we, thankfully we don't need to grieve in hopelessness. If we, if we know the ones that we lose are saved and know Jesus and are with Jesus, I, I know where my dad is, and I know that I will see him again. He's not lost forever, and that brings hope. 
Just a little earlier, Jesus had proclaimed to Martha that he was the resurrection and the life. These people are full of grief and pain, and yet the one who has power over death, Jesus, stands before them, and they don't recognize him. Jesus is angry, but in verse 35, it says that he is also sad. Not that Lazarus is dead. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he's sad because of the pain and the destruction that sin and death bring. Sin has led to this. Verse 35 says, Jesus wept. And again, the Greek word here is really important because it's a different word for crying than the word used for Mary and the Jews. They are, remember, they are wailing, unconstrained grief. They're yelling out. The word used here for Jesus wept, Jesus' tears, it means crying silently or quietly. Jesus is moved. He's sad at the hopelessness that sin and death bring, but he is hope. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish. So Jesus is sad at the hopelessness that sin and death have brought, but he's not wailing. He's not crying out with uncontrolled grief because there's hope and it's him. Jesus is about to prove that he really is the resurrection and the life when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, I mentioned this last Sunday too. In John 5, when Jesus is explaining his authority to the crowd in Jerusalem, he says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus has authority over death. And it's recorded that Jesus has already raised two people from the dead. I don't know how well these miracles are known. Um, did these people in Bethany know that Jesus had raised Jairus' daughter or the, the widow in Nain? The widow in Nain, um, sorry, the son of the widow in Nain. When he was being carried out of the town, he had died. And Jesus had compassion on the widow, and, she, and he raised her son from the dead. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He has authority over death. And very soon, he is about to conquer sin and death once and for all. Jesus is hope. And so he, he is grieved, but he is not overcome with grief like the crowd is here. So John opens his gospel in chapter 1 with this complicated and beautiful poem about who Jesus is. And in the closing of this poem, in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Remember, one of the reasons that John is writing this gospel is that there are false teachers in the church in the late first century questioning the deity and the true humanity of Jesus. John wants to show the church that these false teachers have no grounds for questioning either Jesus' divinity 
or his humanity. He was there. John saw these things happen. And he records them in the Gospel of John so masterfully. He lays out a case for the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. Jesus could experience sadness like every other human being, but unlike other people, he was sinless, and his sadness was not filled with hopelessness at all. We just saw this. Jesus grieved the same things that the Father grieved, sin, death, and all that was associated with it. But at the same time, we see Jesus express that grief in a human way, the same way that we do. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's a profound one. Jesus wept. It shows us his humanity. In Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. By becoming human, Jesus identifies with our sorrow and with our grief and with our pain. And he identifies with the temptations that we face, that the temptations that he overcame and he didn't give into. And so the author of Hebrew uses this fact that Jesus became human He experienced our weaknesses, it says. The author uses this fact, this reality, to encourage us to come before him with confidence that he will help us in our time of need. And and so we should be encouraged because Jesus identifies with our hardships. And John is trying to show us this too. Jesus may be the Son of God, but he also became human. He experienced human sadness. He wept. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Finally, verses 36 and 37 show us the reaction of of Jesus' sadness. The crowd reacts to Jesus' sadness. And it says, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And so we see in many of John's accounts, there's this mixture of reactions to Jesus. (laughs) Firstly, they misunderstood Jesus' sadness. They have no idea he plans to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so how could they know? that he was really grieving sin and death. And and the fact that sin is the root cause of death. Another reaction shows us that everyone was very aware of Jesus' ability to perform miracles. But maybe they, they really hadn't heard about Jesus raising two others from the dead. It seems his most famous miracle in the Jerusalem area anyway was restoring the sight of a blind man. What are these people really saying, though, in verses 36 and 37? Are they saying the same thing as Mary and Martha? If Jesus had come earlier, he could have saved Lazarus? Or are they saying something more cynical, that Jesus didn't have the power to raise the dead? 
Look at the attitude of the Jewish, that the Jewish leaders have when Jesus is hanging on the cross. In Matthew 27, verses 41 and 42, it says, So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. I don't think these mourners in Bethany are mocking Jesus like these Jewish leaders do. But there's definitely doubt in his ability. However, it's not a question of Jesus' ability. It's a matter of his authority. And he has authority to give life to whom he will. Just like we read in John 5. We'll end here today, but before we do, I want to ask, what is, our, what is our reaction to Jesus? Do we believe that he is who he says he is? And if so, do we trust him? And what does it mean to trust Jesus? In John 8, Jesus says, If you hold my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What does it mean to trust Jesus? It means we're willing to follow him. Let's bow our heads together.